Hi, Callie. Hey, True. Happy May and happy birthday. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, my birthday was yesterday. Um, what are we doing today, Callie? Today, we're going to do probably the most famous uh, Zork one. Yeah, uh, that was Infocom's best-selling game, um, even beating out the blockbuster hit Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, Zork 1 had an incredibly long tail. It was in the soft talk list for years. Uh, it's definitely just a big, big game, and I think also just in the history of game design, it's it's a monster. Uh, incredibly influential game. Uh, is even with games that aren't text adventures, it's just a big, big deal. Yeah, whenever I'm, you know, trying to explain your your gold machine or gold microphone project to other people, I always use it as like the example. We're like, well, did you ever play any of the Zork games, like Zork One? Because I feel like if they haven't played any other Infocom games, there's a chance um, that they probably played Zork. Yeah, that's the best guess. Uh, I mean, the other. Um, games by comparison were sort of niche, I suppose. I mean, not obscure. They sold well, but uh, Zork 1 was a pop culture phenomenon. People who didn't play games knew about Zork. It was in the New York Times and covered in other media. It was just, it was a, it was a big thing to talk about in the early 80s. Well, uh, to get us started, I have a question for you, Drew. Okay. Do you think that Duncan Thrax was a mean king for attacking other kingdoms? What other reasons beside meanness might he have had? No, he was mean. Uh, he, he was known as Duncan Thrax, the bellicose, bellicose king. And uh, he really was only interested in uh, securing more territory for his burgeoning empire <laughs> and trying to find other uh people to to sell his granola to i don't think it was very popular in his kingdom so this discussion question of course is from the 1984 grade box browsy for zork and um they're one of my favorite features of that which of course all of this humorous context context was added later because the first version of Zork that was released did not have um, really much in the way of describing what the game was. I've probably already beaten this to death on, on Gold Machine, but if you don't follow Gold Machine, uh, you don't know that I, or maybe you do, that I have a, a beef with the gray box reissues of the early Infocom games. <laughs> I, I think they're retcons. They uh, make them silly in ways that the games actually weren't and weren't designed to be. And even though the Zork games are funny, I don't think um, they weren't really Moretzky-style humor. And that's, I don't know if Moretzky wrote these uh, browsies or not, but it certainly uh, has a Moretzky flair to it, um, which isn't bad in a Moretzky game, but, uh, you know, Zork or... Infidel, they're not Moretzky games, so it doesn't make what happened doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, in in rant, I just <laughs> I don't I don't like retconning what I consider classic uh, classic games. 
And I, I did mention the granola earlier, and I feel like that was a step too far. Uh, I thought that was just a little bit too silly um, because in the game itself, as we'll get to in the episode, there are some excellent moments of humor um, and there's some really interesting mashups between the use of magic and technology. Um, but I don't know, the granola and the bellicose king. <laughs> or double Fanucci. You know, by the time you get to <laughs> no. Zork Zero, um, Zork Zero behaves as if Double Fanucci has been this crucial, crucial, massive part of uh, the Zork universe. And the reality is Double Fanucci wasn't mentioned in the Zork trilogy. Uh, it wasn't mentioned in Enchanter. It was subsequently added to uh, Gray Box reissues of those games. But the reality is if you played those games when they came out, you don't even know what Double Fanucci is. And it's it's misleading to act like this is some sort of uh, cornerstone of Zork content uh, when it isn't. And what is it's kind of just like a trivial side detail, right? Like someone who, which one is the one who's exiled? Is it Quinda or Della Duncan Thrax? Uh, okay, Drew's like I don't know because he didn't really care. But anyway, some exiled king <laughs> is is rumored to have invented the game Double Fanucci. But that's that's it. Yeah. All right, you want to move on? <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, nobody wants to hear me. Uh, gripe for an hour and a half i mean i'll do it it's easy to get me fired up about this but i recognize that not everyone <laughs> gets as worked up as i do on this subject all right well i'm going to read one more discussion question as a way to transition into um our our zork discussion and uh this is what would it be like to live underground if there are any caves near your home spend a week underground to see what it's like <laughs> so the discussion questions are a fun part of the browsy um and of course with zork it is an underground adventure so we are um going to be wandering through its many interesting corridors in today's discussion i'll also say that uh you know the one the one thing i do like about the browsies for Zork 1, 2, and 3 is that they feature the Festeron Public Library uh, plate uh, in, in the front of the book. And as you might remember from our Wishbringer discussion, uh, that becomes a tie-in for the legend of Wishbringer in uh, that game's browsy. And Wishbringer, I think, does a great job of paying tribute to the Zork universe without cluttering it. Um, I think, in my opinion, uh, the only good, and I'm not talking about whether they're fun to play or not, but the only good Zork media that comes out after Spellbreaker is Wishbringer. Um, I think that is very respective of the game world and is also just an awesome game. And we see the mailbox again uh, yeah. in two different forms in Wishbringer. Of course, the, the famous opening of of Zork, which we'll read in a moment, is you open a mailbox. It's kind of like your first action that you do as this adventurer. Um, and then in Wishbringer, of course, there's like a friendly, cheerful mailbox. And then in the uh, the alternate world, <laughs> um, there's like a, a menacing, like chomping mailbox that you see. Yeah. And I, I've said it before, but I said during our Wishbringer episode, I really love the way Moriarty entangles that game with Zork's history um, without 
uh, overriding it or um, altering it significantly. It's just a really great way to expand that universe in a respectful and uh, frankly loving way. Very much. And just one more plug for the Wishbringer episode. Uh, there are grooves in it. And Drew and I had this long discussion about you actually get to see a grew in the Wishbringer games and like, oh, is that okay or not? Because, you know, there's like this primordial void, live in the darkness. Um, but I think we reached the conclusion that it's okay. Moriarty gets away with it. Um, and it's interesting when we get to Zork, there are Gru's living upstairs in the White House. So it is a domestic scene where Gru's are first presented, which in my mind I had forgotten. I thought, oh, they live in the caves, you know. Um, but no, they're actually living upstairs in this old colonial house. So I think it's interesting that Moriarty, kind of like, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, almost, maybe not, um, but the Gru, he keeps them in a domestic house-like scene. Yeah. And that's Something worth thinking about in Zorquan is why is there a Gru in the attic? How would it get there? And the answer is quite simply is that Zork was initially undertaken as sort of a, a hacker's desire to improve a colossal cave adventure, both from a technology as well as from a writing perspective. And in Colossal Cave Adventure, that's by Will Crowther and uh, I think Dave Woods, Woods anyway, um, you can't wander around in the dark in that game either. But rather nonsensically, what happens if you're in the dark is that you fall into a bottomless pit. Now, you never see any pits when, the, when you have your lamp with you, but somehow, as soon as you're in the dark, there's, there's no, there's pits everywhere. And one of the jokes in, uh, they did that also in early versions of the mainframe Zork game, which they were calling Dungeon at the time. And when Dave Lebling finally came up with the Gru as a more reasonable uh, in-world explanation for uh, being unable to go into darkness, being zoned by the darkness essentially, the, there was a crack in the U.S. News and Dungeon Report, which was essentially upgrade notes, um, version notes for the game. It's mentioned that uh, I think uh, Lebling, somebody has been going around the Great Underground Empire filling in bottomless pits. <laughs> like a little road crew. <laughs> and I think that positions us to just briefly stop and say, we all know what Zork is, Callie and I do, and, and a lot of you probably do, but in case a lot of people don't actually play Zork today uh, because it's considered uh, unfriendly and uh, kind of irritating in, in ways that later Infocom games are not. And so if, if you haven't played Zork, if you're not familiar with it, we should back up and say what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and... As I already mentioned, it began with four guys at MIT that sort of uh, just went wild over a colossal cave adventure when it became available over the ARPANET. Uh, nobody had seen anything like it. It was a text adventure, uh, and as you almost certainly know, that means you're given some text on screen 
and you replied, respond to that text by entering little two word commands. They were two word commands on Colossal Cave Adventure. And by doing that, uh, you had the experience of exploring a cave, engaging with some fantasy elements, finding treasures. Um, but four, four guys at MIT thought they could do better. And so really kind of started as sort of a one-upmanship. Um, we can write a better parser. That's the engine that accepts your commands. We can write a better parser. You know, we could do more complicated puzzles, interesting puzzles as a result. Uh, we can have a deeper, more interactive world. And they set out to do this. And uh, the result was initially called Dungeon. It was for the PDP mainframe. And they posted it, just like Colossal Cave Adventure was, on ARPANET. And people found it and played it. And uh, that was, uh, did you write the dates down? Yeah. Yeah, they uh, began working on that in 1977 through 79. And it was released to the public in 1980. And so during that period, it gets honed, it gets improved, it gets bigger and bigger until it takes up a whopping one megabyte, Whoa. one megabyte, <laughs> y'all, of space. And that being so, it could not be played on any uh, home microcomputer at the time. Uh, that was just a massive, massive program uh, for 1980. And so um, Mark Blank and Joel Berez, another MIT guy, uh, got together and just talked about how could we get Zork running on a microcomputer. And they came up with this ingenious thing called the Z-Machine uh, that was basically a virtual machine that Theoretically, any computer could run, and they were able to, you know, by doing that, they f found that they could break Zork into different pieces, essentially episodes, that could be published for the microcomputer. And they got together with some other of their MIT friends. The original four were Bruce Daniels, Tim Anderson, uh, Mark Blank, and Dave Lebling. Uh, Bruce Daniels... Uh, went off to get a PhD um, in Santa Barbara and uh, I think worked for Apple. Uh, it's an important part of Apple history, actually, um, before becoming an expert on uh, climatology and specifically uh, drinking water, water supply, and has been kind of a big uh, figure in um assessing the effects of global warming on drinking water in California. Uh, so very interesting path for Bruce Daniels. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah I didn't know that. <laughs> very fascinating, really. Uh, the other three, though, uh, were involved in starting this company called Infocom, which uh, you've certainly heard of if you've been listening to us. And Infocom uh, didn't really know what to, to, to do. They just the idea was Infocom is some smart MIT people. We're going to figure out something, a way to make money because we're talented and we figure things out. And, you know, uh, Lebling and Anderson uh, heard from their old buddy, Mark Blank and uh, Joel Perez and said, well, you know, we figured out a way uh, to put this on microcomputer. And so everything came together. And then we have Zork One released uh, to the TRS-80 and the Apple II. 
What I love about uh, when I was listening to you to you give that helpful history is um, an idea of who this game, who the audience was of this game. Yeah. And I think by thinking of that trajectory, you know, thinking of this was, um, you know, kind of this fun obsession by these really brilliant guys uh, into into coding, trying to one up the adventure and continue developing that technology into something that could then be sold as a product to the public. So we have the original audience, which is probably like for themselves, like a challenge for themselves to improve the game. Then through ARPANET, something that could be shared with other colleagues um, and then later for something that ended up in places like Hot Springs, Arkansas, where you played it as a as a child. Yeah. And when people say that Zork is hard, of course it was. The Like you said, the audience, they were making a game that would improve upon the experience of their experience of playing adventure. And that experience was four MIT geniuses collaborating on puzzles. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm pretty smart, you know, but I, I don't think I can recreate that playing that audience situation playing by myself at home on a computer. And so, yes, Zork uh, can be difficult. It's not their hardest game, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly assuming that uh, you're going to benefit from having multiple eyes on the same problems, brainstorming. I mean, the other thing is uh, those four had, you know, uh, different things they had read, different things they had experienced. So Lebling had this Dungeons and Dragons uh, background. So we get things like the Dungeons and Dragons combat. Uh, none of the others were interested in that. And that's just an example of what how each of those four, when playing adventure, brought a different perspective to that game. And they approached making Zork 1 in much the same way. So... Uh, they would take something from Colossal Cave Adventure and they would run it through this filter of their own expertise and, and background and come up with these, these other problems, these other rooms, these other geographies, these other characters, and um, come up with something really new and really exciting uh, that, that nobody in 1980 had e ever seen before, perhaps even imagined. Yeah, it is super cool. I mean, no matter, there have been other great podcast episodes where people go, you know, even more into depth about kind of the the actual mechanics of this technology and any, from whatever direction you hear about it. And every time I hear the story of how uh, Zork was made, um, even before it became as part of Infocom, it's just, it's always really exciting. It's just this uh, it's energizing to think about just a group of really smart people with a lot of curiosity like with just a lot of curiosity and ambition coming together and uh this is what we get this is their artwork yeah and it's it's useful to bear that in mind uh when you approach this game and those of you who read gold machine know that i'm interested and in, not just interested concerned about canonicity of these old games uh most of the things you uh read or hear about these games kind of comes a lot of it comes from an authorial perspective you've heard me say that 
so it focuses really heavily on the technology. It focuses really heavily on, you know, who was Mark Blank? Who was Dave Lebeling? You know, that kind of great man theory of media analysis. And, you know, I think that's all well and good. But what, I, what I'm really worried about as somebody trying to, you know, be a humanist dealing with these things is who's preserving this media? You know, are they funded? Um, right now, everything Zork is based on individual heroism. There's no um, kind of a nonprofit organization tasked with preserving these games and the documents that come with them. Um, there's no organization, you know, there's no uh, comprehensive effort to uh, analyze these games as, as media, as cultural I items, you know, as things um, that have influenced uh, Western culture, uh, which they have. And the only reason that isn't on most people's minds is because it hasn't been talked about. It's an unexplored thing. And so um, one of the reasons why I want to do this stuff is just to, you know, bring that perspective and, you know, think about these, these texts as they are texts. And um, it's not that those other forms of analysis are bad. They're very good. And I read uh, stuff like that hungrily, you know, excitedly. But there's more to these games than history. You know, there's also, um, or, you know, a mechanical history, history of people, history of organizations. There's also the history of, the games as text and how they've been viewed over time. And right now, I think um, the idea that Zork is too complicated to be fun is sort of missing the point. Um, I bring up John Donne as an example, you know, one of the metaphysical poets, very complicated, not easy to read. Um, I don't always know what John Donne is writing about, to be honest. But that's John Donne, you know, that's the history. And you know, the same way Zork, yeah, it's got a lot of dumb mazes because nobody had figured out that dumb mazes sucked yet. <laughs> you know, nobody had yeah. worked that out. Um, Zork is where that got worked out. You know, I, I've said it before that we're lucky that Zork made so many mistakes because other games didn't have to make them. You know, Zork was out there in front. And that's, that's important when you think about all the convenience, conveniences we have today. That's based on reflection on things from the past. That's where that realization comes from. Somebody had to do it wrong first. Somebody had to innovate, both in good and bad ways. And that's, that's how I see Zork even its failings. I see its failures as positive events in the evolution of video games. I love that. You can probably hear the passion, uh, listeners, <laughs> in Drew's voice. Um, and I, I just can't help but jump ahead here and talk about you know, just the imaginative groundwork that Zork helped 
pave. And uh, Drew and I were having a smaller conversation about um, one of the treasures that you can get in Zork. And I don't want to cross any spoiler fences, but I was like, oh, you, you don't actually end up doing what you think you could with it. But the fact that you imagine different ways you can use it um, is very exciting. And I feel like each, each room, each object um, that Zork gives us, it just is a, is a launching point for the player of other just imaginative adventures. And I think in, in a larger scale, that's what Zork is doing. It is this wonderfully imaginative object that has since you know, inspired other games and other imaginations. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's said today, and I believe this to be true, is that parsers, one of the things the parser game does is it doesn't tell you unless you ask what's impossible. So when you first confront, like you said, a room or an object, mm -hmm. you have this, the game doesn't tell you until you ask. that You know, you can't do that. And so the first time you're in a room, you're going through, like you said, that imaginative space of, mm -hmm. you know, what, what could I possibly do here? What, what is possible uh, with a clove of garlic? You know, what am I going to do with it? You know, one of the things you can do with it is eat it. Um, but that's probably not what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> Okay, where are we going from here? Well, I think we got it. We we broke free of our usual setup where we do a little discussion of what's going on at Gold Machine, and then we read some mail. Oh yeah. Um, but I think it's totally okay with this game. Uh, just we jumped right in because it's an exciting game. Yeah. And it's it's a big deal. Zork One doesn't have a main through line. Uh, you basically wander a huge area doing things until you've done everything. And maybe that's what this podcast will be like too, kind of in the spirit <laughs> of Zork. I do know we need to jump back and do some introductory things, but most important, we've got a great email to read. Um, we were so excited to get it and we want to talk about it a little bit. So let's table it. And when we get back to Zork, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and set up the basic goal of the game, the basic environment of the game, and then we can talk more about our takes on it as an experience. What do you think? I love it. Okay. Okay, so this is Ian's wonderful email. And Ian is writing to us from Scotland. And I think he wrote after listening to the Plundered Hearts episode. And you asked a question. And he's responding to that question. Yeah, he sent, sent us a really awesome email about... Uh, just some of his experiences with interactive fiction and it was a blast to read. And since Ian's from Scotland, I asked, and he, sorry, he mentioned that most of his experiences were um, from games made on his side of the Atlantic. And that's something I'm really uh, ignorant of. Honestly, I don't really know anything about level nine or magnetic scrolls or, uh, other other developers of interactive fiction in the North Atlantic. So I asked him, I said, well, I, I love this, Ian. What 
you know, what, what would you say the best five games from your part of the world are? All right, so I'll give you the first half of the email, and then I'll read the second half. Okay. Um, hello, Drew and Callie. Thanks for your message. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and failed to come up with an answer. I think the best I can do is more personal and has turned into which five games from the classic era of adventure games most affected you. I think this is more interesting to think about. And the time limit, the 1980s really, put some strong limits in place. After then, we have an awful lot of technically brilliant games, but they came in a different phase of my life, so mostly didn't mean as much, with one exception. Having listened to the Plundered Hearts episode, I'm playing along so lagging behind, I now know how old Drew is, and that too is an important context, as I have to report he is a mere stripling. I'm about five years older, so I was there with the first wave of micros. In the UK, these were the ZX81, I miss the ZX80, the Spectrum, the Dragon 32, our Coco, and the BBC Micro. I was lucky enough to have them all at one point or another. My first game is an obvious one. You can't talk about adventure games in the UK without talking about The Hobbit. It was everywhere, and everyone had a copy of it. It was in every shop, and an incredibly wide range of shops sold micros as well as software. And it came with the book, at least to start with. I remember getting it as a ZX micro fair in London and reading the book on the long journey home. That must have been early 1983 for me. So I'd have been 12 or 13 years old. It has a range of innovations. Pictures, a parser that understood more than two words at a time. NPCs that moved around independent of you. It was overwhelming for those of us who hadn't seen those things before. I'm afraid it is of mostly historical value now. It's really not that good as a game, but our minds were blown. My second game is more obscure. We had The Quill in the UK, which was a system for writing adventures and led to an extraordinary number of games being commercially released. In 1984, Hampstead came out, a game which was written using The Quill and actually from the same publisher as The Hobbit. The aim is to transcend the class barrier in the UK. You start off in local authority housing in a tracksuit and somehow have to end up in the poshest of posh London boroughs, Hampstead. Even today, this game lives with me. It has no graphics and a limited parser. Think of it as the evil twin of the Infocom Sherlock game, as it contains a very different, darker London. The sellers included a card, which you could either return to them to get a certificate that you'd completed the game, which I did, or to get a hint book, but not both. Despite its relative obscurity, I believe you can actually get a version of it for free on iOS even today. All right, and I'll continue with Ian's third through fifth favorites. My third game is possibly cheating. I won it in a computer magazine competition, although not before having bought it myself. I think of this as the missing verse in Ironic. It is Lords of Midnight by the extraordinary Mike Singleton. 
It's baffling and brilliant and impossible. It's probably not even an adventure. If you have any interest in fantasy games, though, I'd still recommend you take a look. I never finished it. I don't know anyone who has. But for 1984, what Singleton achieved is near impossible. Again, you can get it on a variety of platforms, including mobile, even today. There are even novelizations. My fourth game is The Worm of Paradise by Level 9. We are now in 1985, the same year as A Mind Forever Voyaging, with which it shares some themes. This game has dreadful design. There are far too many empty rooms. Navigating around the world is extremely difficult because of the complex transit system. It plays in real time, which can be very frustrating. However, it has some great ideas, and the weaknesses oddly freed into its, feed into its strengths. The dystopian future gets under your skin after a while, with the need to curfew when you are getting lost and in danger of not getting home in time. It still feels genuinely creepy. For my fifth game, I'm going to cheat again. I mentioned that The Worm came out in the same year as A Mind Forever Voyaging. I know you wanted non-U.S. games, but A Mind Forever Voyaging is still the most affecting adventure experience I know of. I found going back to my own apartment in each time era moving beyond anything I've experienced in a game. I didn't get to play this game until much later. System requirements were way beyond what I had until I got an Amiga in 1991. But if I had to name one game that points to the potential of the medium to both subvert what had gone before and to show how powerful it is, then it would be this. Sorry for such a long email. <laughs> well, no apologies, Ian. I think you just gave all of us uh, a wonderful list of suggested games. This is incredible. Yes, and I think... Oh, I'm I'm gonna have to. Uh, we're either on Gold Microphone or over at Gold Machine. Uh, we're gonna have to make an effort to look at some of these games. Uh, you know, my, a Mind Forever Voyaging is gonna happen as a matter of course, but uh, these other titles uh, we'll have to seek out and uh, maybe try to try to look at. Um, I do want to say that next episode, we're going to say this later too, is a mind forever voyaging. Um, and it's also one of my favorite games uh, ever, really. And we're going to have as a guest Aaron Reed, who uh, is, pretty, you know, I'm, if you don't know who he is, he's a very well-known figure in the interactive fiction community. He's uh, wrote, written some great games. He's also designed RPGs. He's uh, done a procedurally generated novel. Um, and most recently, he's uh, the the genius behind 50 years of text games, which I, or text adventures. I, I think um, that's probably the, um, the best... Um, bite-sized body of and by bite-sized i mean uh not thousands of posts long <laughs> um a history of uh, games in an interactive fiction medium and uh we're really excited to be able to talk to him about this amazing game it's, i think it's going to be a great episode um so that's that's two things for you you know uh, please look for that i think you're going to like it and also thanks for the tips I, I think Kelly and I read your um, email and 
we both are very intrigued about these titles. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk a little more about that idea soon. Yeah, y'all, I mean, getting mail and then this upcoming guest episode with Aaron Reed, uh, I, I think Drew and I both, we've had conversations just how cool it is to be meeting people and to just be sharing in the joy um, and interest of, of our interactive fiction community. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, Ian. And um, big thanks to Aaron for this upcoming episode. Yep. Um, so that's the only... <laughs> That's the only mail we're going to read. We we wanted to feature uh, that note as someone who, as a as a piece that really, um, not just reached out but added to I think the quality of the discourse on on this episode. So thanks for that, Ian. Uh, we got a lot of pleasure out of hearing from you, and uh, hopefully that's not the last time. No, and in the show notes we will just list the titles that Ian mentioned. Mm -hmm. as a reference point if you want to check those out too so is there anything else we need to talk about before we dive back in well a month is a long time between these episodes and um i really just want you to say something quickly about your own game your first game that you are, are writing in inform seven and you hope to have a, a demo release soon is that true yeah, although not released, uh, I'm, I, I, I want once I've confirmed uh, the demo or proof of concept, whichever you like, is completed, and I've made a first pass through it for um, bugs and you know language. Uh, hopefully next week early, I'll probably put out a request on the interactive fiction forum uh, see if. A uh, few people are interested in taking a look at it uh, just to make sure, uh, mainly worried. I want to be sure the mechanics are clear um, because they're new for the game. And I just want, I don't want players to struggle to figure it out. I want that to be, I want them to have a good experience getting into this gameplay loop. And I just want to make sure that's actually what will happen when I turn people loose on it. That is so exciting. Um, so what is it like to to kind of be doing both, writing about games and writing your own game? Well, they're pretty, pretty different. Um, for a lot of this analysis I do at Gold Machine, it really comes naturally because my background academically in uh, reading text and interpreting text and that's really what I'm trying to do mainly at Gold Machine as a way to set myself apart from the you know, solid body of historical um, or uh, writer-based interpretation. So um, that, that, that I don't have to, I haven't had to teach myself anything to do that. I know how to do that. But this uh, writing the game is a very different thing. I mean, I know how to certainly do the text the feedback to players the descriptions uh, that's all um comes pretty naturally too but the programming is a work in progress you know I, i'm certainly better at it than when i started i think the other tricky thing is puzzle design um because i've never done that before so trying to come up with i'm not so interested in puzzles as i am giving the players opportunities to do interesting things 
with the possibilities the game offers. Um, I want, I'm more interested in creating a sense of engagement and emotional investment than I am. Uh, you know, I never want somebody to feel like they're uh, doing a Rubik's cube or something. You know, that's just not, that doesn't interest me as a player or a writer. Well, I, I know I'm not alone uh, in, in being excited about getting our first sneak peek into Drew as a game writer. So that's, that is really exciting. Okay, so Zork, we, I think we all know uh, what Zork is, but just to put it simply, it is a treasure hunting game. Yeah, uh, the manual uh, back in, you know, uh, what I consider the definitive release of Zork 1 has like one or two sentences telling you that there are 20 treasures of Zork that the adventurer must find and then put them in a trophy case. And that's really all the game tells you about the world or about what you're there to do. And uh, it just turns you loose in this big world. Yeah, you don't really know who you are. You're you're nameless. Um, you're just a, an adventurer who comes upon the famous um, White House. And I think this is probably a good moment to just read the very, very opening lines. You are standing in an open field west of a White House with a boarded front door. There is a small belt mailbox here. And that's where you start the game. And you're just a a guy going into this abandoned house or it's not abandoned going into this old house. Yeah. Uh, you're surrounded by woods and or the friendly woods. <laughs> you're surrounded. The house is surrounded by woods and you're standing uh, near this house and there's no real um, sense of where you ought to go or what you ought to do. Um, although I think for a lot of players, the house is intriguing and people naturally uh, want to check it out, check out the mailbox. I mean, that's one of the things in 1980 that you would be thinking about as a player is in each room I enter, are there things I should engage with? Or, you know, should I be paying attention to this thing I'm looking at? And I think most people open the mailbox. Mm -hmm. I opened the mailbox. I mean, it was right there. I was just open it. Read a little leaflet in it. Yeah, that's like the mechanic of the game. You see it, you examine it, mm -hmm. and you probably take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we t we did Enchanter already, so we you know if you've listened to that episode that one of the gags in in Enchanter is that you actually encounter the adventurer or a adventurer, I should say from the Zork series. And one of the things they do is pick up everything that isn't nailed down. And you know, that's fair. I, I think first time players, they, there's no telling what you need, but you, so you just carry everything you can. So since the adventurer is a recurring figure beyond just the Zork, uh, trilogy, I think it's it's worthwhile to maybe spend a little bit of time um, on him. And it's not always 
so I think you write about this in your gold microphone blog post from like uh, last October. It's not always the same person, or at least that's your theory. There's not just one adventurer. We are a adventurer in Zork. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yes, I do. Um, I think what I posited uh, in Deadline, those of you who play Deadline, and we'll do a Deadline episode here eventually, uh, there's a clock and there's a house. And from minute to minute, the people in and around that house do different things. And because you as the player can only be in one place, uh, that means the house is sort of in a quantum state. The only way you can know if something happens at a specific time in a specific location is being there. But when you're there, you don't know if something is happening at that time in a different place. So that's that's a quantum state. It has related kind of relative of Schrodinger's cat. Um, you know, you you don't know till you're there, but then you don't know something else. And I called that quantum detective and sort of spawning different world lines. A uh, Zork is a little different um, in terms of Zork time, which I use as a term in other games. It goes from turn to turn and basically with very few exceptions, the world does nothing if you aren't, where the thing is happening. Um, the thief's movement is one ep example. Um, if you start the uh, dam filling up the reservoir, you can leave and it'll still fill up. But for most part, uh, things only happen when you intervene. And so that isn't a quantum state. But what is an uncertain state is the progress of each of the thousand, several, several thousands of players who individually all played Zork, and they all experienced a different world, essentially. Um, one of the jokes I like to make is, uh, you know, what about those players who didn't get past the dam, you know, or, or you know, never figured out... Um, even just the forest yeah <laughs> like got lost in the forest on the periphery of the house never made it underground yeah. <laughs> like i'm guilty of that <laughs> yeah you know um and i think to you know when you see the adventurer in enchanter it's like well which adventurer is this because they don't seem smart enough to do the royal puzzle in zork 3 right um they're another adventurer and I think that's a different kind of world line uh, scenario. Uh, it's not quantum necessarily. I don't know what you would call it, but the many players, many worlds theory mm -hmm. is what, what I would say it is. Um, and since you brought it up, I, I think the adventure and enchanter is a really great illustration of that. Yeah, and I loved what you said about um, each player is it their own adventure. So many players, many worlds. And um, I think that's why we talk a lot about like the canon and preserving these games and these games as history. But I think as we all can attest to as people who play them and enjoy them, they are very much 
living <laughs> when we step into this. It truly, like you're saying, we are each our own uh, adventure in this world. And so um, that that makes it quite fascinating, even though we're all presented with this mailbox and probably many of us open it. Um, there are many ways that we can make our way through this. Yeah, definitely. And I think because of the sheer openness and size of Zork One's game world, that's especially true. Uh, it's a world where um, anybody really can go to almost more than half of the game world, um, almost from the very beginning. And that creates, uh, you know, really unique experiences uh, for each player. And of course, the puzzles become the touchstones that different players can talk about. Like maybe you went and got the egg first. Maybe you didn't. But everybody has to deal with the egg. So it's like there are these wide open things with sort of embedded mm -hmm. in this sort of cloud of exploration and experience, um, these embedded waypoints that each player must wrestle with. Yeah, I was looking at uh, YouTube and there were different walkthroughs or uh, playthroughs that people had posted. And it was like each one kind of had their own entry point. I was like, oh, I wouldn't have thought to go there first. But it does sort of change. Um, it is interesting to think about moving through in a different sequence. Yeah, for sure. Um, I can barely remember my first time playing Zork. Um, it was with a friend. And I, it was his big brother's uh, pirated disc, actually. But he and he and I um, decided we didn't want to mess with the force at all. We went straight to the underground empire because you could get lost in the forest, and uh, we didn't think that was fun. Um, but as an adult, the first thing I do, like when I went and got my transcript for this podcast and for a gold machine, the first thing I do is go into the forest and get the egg. But that's an informed playthrough. That's not really an organic, natural exploration playthrough. Um, I, so I'm, I'm about to like start saying some things that I'm worried would be spoilers. So are there any things that we want to say before we talk maybe more in detail about some of these treasures and puzzles? Well, without going into detail, I would like to say that Zork as a world is pretty interesting. Um, and I don't think it really conforms to some other predetermined style of world building. In fact, I think Zorkian is kind of its own descriptor for a certain type of mashup mm -hmm. of uh, settings and cultural references, you know, sci-fi versus fantasy. And um, you know, that's one of the things to me that makes Zork distinctive uh, and contributes a lot to its humor and the sense of sort of limitless possibility. Part of the possibility is you really don't know what you'll see from room to room. Um, so that, I just say that without spoilers. That playing Zork, you can have that kind of experience. And I think if you're open to um, playing an older game, just like in a lit class you might be open to reading an older wor work of literature zork could be worth your time uh, i find it worthwhile uh, callie i know one of the things you wanted to bring up was whether this would be a good first game 
Yeah, I asked you, um, since it's kind of like the first game of Infocom, I was like, well, would this be a good first game for for someone who hadn't played any Infocom games before? And uh, my answer today is no, um, I don't think so. I think, I mean, it was my first Infocom game. And uh, from a technical perspective, it was such a showpiece that... Uh, you know, it was easy to forgive if you even notice them, its shortcomings. Again, most of those things that are considered problems now, uh, later developers, later players, later critics would realize that those were problems. But Zork had nothing, um, competed with nothing, in my opinion, certainly not technologically. Uh, so, uh, it's cool. And if you care about the history of video games or the history of interactive fiction, you know, just like you might read some Shakespeare, even though Shakespeare doesn't, Shakespearean characters don't, for example, say it's lit or use, you know, various, you know, contemporary uh, terms. Uh, it's silly to complain about Shakespeare not doing that. And it's a little, it's a waste of time to complain about Zorg being old. Because of course it's old. It's, that's what it is. Um, but I don't think I'd play it first uh, just because it's hard to learn the conventions of text games. You know, the idiom, you know, the various set commands. I mean, once you're experienced, you're going to examine everything. You're going to take everything. You're going to look under things. You're going to do all of that stuff because that's what's done. That's the language. That's the rhetoric of adventure gaming. Um but if you're not familiar with that, I don't think learning that by playing Zork is necessarily the best experience. Um, out of the Infocom canon, I think it's probably Wishbringer. Um, but uh, even Wishbringer uh, is is challenging for for new players. So, I, but I would start there. I think it's the friendliest. It's the friendliest and most interesting friendly game uh, by Infocom. Yeah, listeners, and I'd like to hear what you think, too. If, you know, if a friend came up to you like, hey, which Infocom game should I play first? Uh, which one would you recommend to them? Oh, I would recommend Enchanter, actually. I mentioned Wishbringer, <laughs> but I think Enchanter is good because it doesn't have all the f comfortable features of Wishbringer. So you can at least get used to playing kind of the main mm -hmm. body of Infocom work. Um, and people love the magic system so much that um, I think it makes it easier to overlook uh, some of the archaic uh, features of these older games. I agree with that. And I like Enchanter too. Its map is quite friendly, um, especially it's like one big shoot in a way, like from the beginning until more of the before the map sprawls, you kind of practice moving from location to location more linearly, and then it starts opening up. So um, as you were talking earlier about how open Zork's world is, I think it's a bit too open for, for a beginner. And like myself, I still um, am learning how to maneuver all of this. Yep, I agree completely. Um, that's, um, yep, that's what you ought to do. Uh, maybe hold off on it, uh, but treat it like you treat Shakespeare or some other, uh, you know, work of lit written in an obsolete idiom. 
Um, you know, you got to meet these games where they are um, if you want to deal with them fairly. Uh, but with all that said, Callie, you, you mentioned you wanted to get into some spoiler country, and I do too. Um, so I guess, you know, this time, since it gets barred behind you, this would be like going through the trap door in in the living room right when when you go through the trap door it gets barred behind you you can't go back up at least not for a long time so that's kind of like our point of no return once you go through the trap door uh you're gonna get things spoiled you hear about puzzles you're gonna hear about um what little there is of story and some of the world building uh, mysteries of the game that you might want to encounter yourself so if you're gonna play this and you haven't Maybe hold off. Hold off. Go play it. Enjoy it. Come back and listen to the to the the spoiler part of the episode. So, uh, okay, you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So, since you just mentioned Shakespeare, um, I I wanted to go back really quickly and talk about the the thief. Um, and you made a really clever reading of The Thief in one of your gold machine blog posts of, of Zork One. And um, you, the description of The Thief is he is like lean and... Lean and hungry gentleman. Lean and hungry gentleman. And you said that you made this um, connection with its potential allusion to um, Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. <laughs> And what Caesar is saying there is that he's not, um, he's suspicious of people um, that seem lean and hungry, like they might be seditious, they might stage a revolution, or, you know, like um, ha- what happens with Brutus, you know, plan a uh, revolution or, or plan an assassination. And as we know, with the thief carrying his stiletto, uh, we should definitely be suspicious of him. Um, I do think it's interesting, you know, kind of building off what we talked about earlier and how when we move, the world moves too. Like the world is responding to us as players. It is interesting to think about the only two human figures in Zork are us, the player, as the adventurer, and um, this lean and hungry man, the the thief. So we have the adventurer and the thief. And um, one thing that I think we can continue to talk about is how those things sort of become interchangeable. We are, as the adventurer, we're also a thief. <laughs> um, and the game sort of, I think, invites this type of adventurer thief um, almost making those like complementary or synony- maybe not synonymous with one another whenever you have things like um, going into the painter's studio or you encounter these paintings. It's like, oh, there's still something for you to vandal. <laughs> I mean, still something for you to steal. So kind of delighting even in the text of the game of, of stealing things. Yeah. Um, in Zork 2, actually, there's a sign uh, that reads hello footpad which is of course a, a thief hello thief and that's one of the int- fascinating tensions of zork one is you know what's the difference between an adventurer and a thief 
And, you know, one of them, I think, simply is, well, protagonists are adventurers. Mm. That's the more polite, yes. Yeah. We wouldn't call ourselves the scoundrel, the yes. thief. <laughs> and, the, and everyone else could be a thief, but the player is an adventurer. And you, deliberate or not, I mean, who knows what uh, those four were thinking when they put this stuff together. But um, in terms of how we experience it, there's definitely a lot of tension between the thief and the adventurer. Not just, oh, the thief is very confident, competent and very dangerous, but the thief is also interested in treasure. The thief is also interested in stashing them, these treasures. Um, you're doing the same things. And I think that this, in terms of gameplay, this you know kind of exchange between the adventurer and the thief is put together so brilliantly in the the puzzle of of the golden of the jewel encrusted egg and the golden clockwork canary and literally solving this puzzle involves an exchange of you have to be cunning enough to give it you the adventurer have to be cunning enough to give it to the thief because you see that he possesses maybe more dexterity and more skill at opening it and then once he opens that for you then you can kill him. <laughs> so there's like this literal exchange of like, you take the object, you give it to the thief, um, he solves it, then you become uh, a murderer. <laughs> so you have like adventure, being an adventurer, a thief, and a murderer kind of all combined in this one puzzle. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that doggone egg, I think over the years, no puzzle in um zork period zork one two or three um has upset as many people as the egg problem in zork one because thing is if, if you kill the thief before getting the egg and it's quite possible to kill the thief without ever having seen the egg the game is unwinnable and it doesn't tell you that um it doesn't hint at that. There's no sense that uh, you've blown it and really bothers people. And, you know, the truth is, by the time something like Trinity came around, Infocom would never do that without telegraphing in some way. Uh, but uh, I think we really need to focus on uh, in terms of a, a problem in the game, a puzzle in the game is, like you said, how ingenious it is for the, the adventurer to recognize that this other character is capable of doing something that the adventurer can't and taking advantage of that situation. Um, you know, in terms of like Deploying that as a puzzle, think about how brilliant that is. For to have that, you have to have an independent actor. You have to have, um, I mean, players at the time, why would you even think technologically somebody, uh, you know, a character like the thief would be capable of acting independently and solving this problem for you? And we see that again and again in Zork. There's lots of problems where you never try something because you don't think a computer is smart enough to do it. <laughs> and 
This will prove you wrong. <laughs> and and Zork, you know, at that time, yeah, many times would prove you wrong. You you would assume, oh, no game could do that. And you know, then in time, maybe you would see, no, this is the state of the art mm-hmm. in terms of this sort of game, and it absolutely can do these things that no other game can do. And earlier you talked up like in the game itself, there's this incredible mashup of like fantasy, magic, um, and then science, maybe even a bit sci-fi technology. And I think I, even thinking about Zork's creation, it feels somewhat magical. Like it is this, this tech magic creation in a way. Like you're saying, who would think that you, you might like dismiss or limit your own thinking because you're like, oh, the computer, like you said, isn't smart enough to handle it. But it is quite magical when it does. And um, just saying a little bit more about this egg and canary puzzle, you said earlier, Drew, about how this game is is very open and it's a bit bare in terms of characterization um, and plot. But I think this puzzle is a really cool moment that does it provides, I think, some of the most characterization that we get of who the adventurer is. We get to see his cunning and to he has he has means and motive. <laughs> um, he is giving this um, and he's setting uh, the sequence of events in play. And we also get to see a bit of who the thief is. So even though it's quite bare in terms of characterization, this is a very um, incredible moment where we get to see a bit more of who we are <laughs> as a player. Yeah, and I think it also is one example of how brilliant uh, the Zork trilogy is in terms of world building. And, you know, you don't always hear people say that, uh, but it's very true. This this thief is a very produ- provocative and thought-provoking figure. You know, um, Lean and Hungry Gentlemen, is this a failed or fallen aristocrat you know that's in the ruins of this empire where nobody lives anymore he's even described as like his genteel like when he when you can die like he's like he forgot his genteel upbringing and slices your throat i think um so we do know like you're saying that he could be a fallen aristocrat potentially or from that class so there's this unexpected depth um, in certain aspects of Zork 1, that if you're just breezing through or you're laughing about Lord Flathead, you might not catch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there. You know, when you go down the, in, you know, through the trap door into the Great Underground Empire for the first time, the door is barred behind you. We just said that. Who's barring the door? You know, and it's easy to say, oh, that's just video games. Somebody is barring the door. But no, I want, we need to think about that. Who in this world is there to bar the door? It could be the thief, but, you know, this thief doesn't hang out above ground. You're safe from the thief above ground. Um, Who is that? And what's this all about? What's this, why is this treasure going in a case? You know, the adventurer doesn't take the treasure for them. They don't get to keep any of it. It's to put it in this case. What is that about? Um, you know, what, why is there a dam here? <laughs> yeah, and I like what you're saying. Um, you know, 
later with the Browsy, these kind of, you know, the king and Duncan Thrax and the empire, I think sometimes that can clutter what you're talking about, where the game itself, even without that additional background and narrative, the original game has so much mystery um, and so much implied just so many questions that you can ask like who is this is it i think you maybe have said drew like a dungeon master is it the thief is it a Gru? like does the Gru have a body and come down and close it behind you um and i you know as lighthearted and as many jokes as this game has there are some real you know uh effectively uh sombering moments especially like when we get to uh the gates of hell and there's all these tormented spirits you may be like oh well that's of course that's what hell is supposed to have it's supposed to be really tormented um but i think what i'm trying to get out here is it's just really fascinating how we have this range of of humor like i think one of the funniest moments is the vampire bat and the garlic that drew mentioned earlier um you have to have that with you so that the bat doesn't carry you away i mean that's really fun that's really clever that's really lighthearted. Um, but then there are things much more serious, like the the poem in the book um, in one of the rooms, which I think, would this be a good time to read the poem? Sure. Okay. I'll let you can have a little read. All right. This is Commandment 12,592. O ye who go about saying unto each, Hello, sailor, dost thou know the magnitude of thy sin before the gods? Yea, verily, thou shalt be ground between two stones. Shall the angry gods cast thy body into the whirlpool? Surely thy eye shall be put out with a sharp stick. Even unto the ends of the earth shall thou wander, and unto the land of the dead shall thou be sent at last. Surely thou shalt repent of thy cunning. Okay, that is heavy. And uh, you'd be like, oh, it's evoking different things from mythology. You know, we have the um, ground between two stones, like Scylla, or um, the angry whirlpool, like Charybdis, and the... the the stick and the eye, like the cyclops, and you'd be like, oh, it's just playing off of these different things. But no, I think it's put together much more intentionally than that. And the final line, especially, if we are the adventurer, we're the one who are supposed to be the master of cunning. That's our our biggest weapon in this game, is how cunning we can be. Uh, this is quite a, <laughs> to repent of thy cunning, um, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I think this is a very effective poem. It's sort of evoking this larger, um, who are we accountable to? Who is outside of this game? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and it's also, Hello Sailor is one of the coolest, at least one of the coolest Easter eggs I've ever encountered in any game. Um, interestingly, if you say Hello Sailor in Zork 1, when you die, you won't... Um, you won't be um, reincarnated in the forest. Um, instead, your disembodied spirit will be reincarnated in the land of the dead. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of a world building, this isn't just a joke. If you do this, 
you really will be in the land of the dead, you know, and you'll have another problem to solve besides just losing all your stuff. Uh, yeah. And I like too. we talked a little bit about the mythology um, and you'd mentioned, we talked about Shakespeare a lot, but I think another one, of course, we see with the actual Cyclops who is in the game are um, allusions to, you know, maybe even parallels that can be made between the adventurer and Odysseus. So there are many treasures, I think 20 that you get in the game. Each one of those would be its own fun conversation, um, but I don't know if we all want to be here for five <laughs> hours. So um, I, Drew has some really interesting thoughts about what we're doing in this game, not only collecting treasures, but where we're taking them. Yeah, and like I said earlier, you know, what is with this trophy case? You have to get all these treasures and take them to this case. And it isn't the adventurer's case. It's not the adventurer's house. And one thing worth asking is whose house is this? You know, whose house is it that has this hidden entrance to the great underground empire? You know, whose house is this that has a groove in the attic? You know, whose house is this that... With Gothic... Um, decorations on the door yeah it's described as a colonial style is it a mansion it's a beautiful colonial a beautiful colonial yeah what's this beautiful colonial doing above a fallen empire you know all these questions and it's easy i think to play through this and again like i said just laugh about flathead never think about it um but really what's this stuff doing here why why does this adventurer come from somewhere? We don't know where they come from, but it must have been a hard journey because the woods and the forest around uh, the house are impassable. I mean, you that would be a struggle through a thick, thick forest or steep, dangerous mountains just to get here. Why? When they don't keep the treasure, why are they here? Um, and who, you know, who's it for? Who, who bars the trap door when he goes downstairs? Um, who, who wants this treasure? And I think the interesting thing that happens there, uh, Callie, and, and I'll ask you what you think in a second, but um, when you finally get all the treasures in the case, a disembodied voice says, look to your treasures for the secret. And if you do look... Um, and it can be easy to miss, honestly. Um, there in the cabinet, in the case with all of your treasures, is a map. And the map tells you that from in front of the house where you started, you can go, I think it's southwest, and you'll enter this barrow, um, sort of this underground thing that leads downward uh, into the next phase of the underground empire, which is Zort Two. So... The player was doing all of this to get deeper into the great underground empire. Um, and I think if you really think about that, it reconfigures a lot of the stuff the, the adventure has been up to. Um, they were never out for treasure. They were playing a bigger game. Yeah. And it's like, do we have, was this all a test? Was this our tryout? Do we have what it takes to continue? I mean, if you think about what we've done, we've not only stolen things, but we have killed 
Um, we've killed a thief. We've killed a troll. Um, we don't know the adventurer's history. And as Drew said, I mean, it's implied that they've made it through a lot potentially to get here and, and do have skills of survival. But have they ever done the things that they did underground? Um, and now that we've done them, I guess we can continue to the next part of the empire. Yeah, that's a really good question. Is the adventurer a killer or do they become a killer in order to pass whatever this test is? Is that just an example of what line they might be willing to cross to get in that barrow and find whatever's at the bottom of it? Well, this has been a lot of fun <laughs> talking about Zork. And um, I, I mean, honestly, there were so many things that came up in this conversation that we didn't have really any of that planned. So it just led to a lot of neat play. Again, right? The imaginative spaces that we enter <laughs> when, when we talk about or play these games. Um, I do think it's worth restating that Aaron Reed will be our guest in the next episode of Gold Microphone. We will be talking about A Mind Forever voyaging. And um, we didn't really talk about what Drew is doing over at Gold Machine. But yes, even though he's writing his game, he is still busy at work weekly, um, releasing excellent blog posts. And he just wrapped up Cutthroats. And um, each Monday, you can look forward to a new post. So what are you currently working on? Well, I just finished Cutthroats. Um... And that turned out to be an interesting exploration. I didn't realize it, but what it really wound up being about is corporate culture at Infocom in the middle of 1984. As people who follow this stuff, uh, their a disastrous business product, Cornerstone, uh, would be released in seven short months and uh, change Infocom's destiny, unfortunately, forever. Um, next up is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and uh, speaking of Aaron Reed, uh, in about four weeks, he's going to be posting uh, some uh, new and unique material for his 50 years of text adventures, text games um, book that will be coming soon, so all new material from Aaron Reed. If you haven't read any of the 50 years stuff, it's all really amazing, well-researched. And that's going to be um, one hell of a post, I know. So uh, a couple things to look forward to in the gold machine microphone uh, family of media criticism. Lots of treasures to collect. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't help myself I had to <laughs> throw that in well y'all it's been so much fun uh thank you so much for tuning in please write to us about any and all things related to this or other recommendations that you had like Ian's wonderful letter so we, we always love hearing from you and we look forward to future episodes absolutely thanks a lot we'll talk to you next time <laughs>